Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Heights Church. We meet weekly at 9 and 11 a.m. For more information, visit SalemHeightsChurch.org. Well, this morning we are super pleased to be able to welcome uh, Dr. Sean McDowell with us this morning. Sean is a uh, professor of apologetics down at Talbot Seminary at Biola University. He's an author and a speaker. And uh, as our summer series has been on life in the tension, we want to be focusing on how do we engage our culture. And one of the things that was really important to Justin and I as we invited guest speakers was we were looking for uh, preachers who could come in not only to, to tell us what God's Word says and to encourage us and to charge us to go out and to fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples through the proclamation of the gospel, but we were really wanting men who could kind of epitomize the tone in which the Bible mm. instructs us to do that with gentleness mm. and respect. And if you know Sean and his ministry, watch him uh, online, watch, uh, read his articles, follow him on social media. You know that he engages with people from all different beliefs all over the world, and he always finds a great balance of grace and truth. And so we're very excited for him to come and share with us this morning. Sean, would you come on up? Thank Let's welcome you. Sean. Thanks, brother. <laughs> Hey, by the way, at our local pregnancy center in San Clemente, near where I live, $30,000 a year they raise from these. So each one makes a difference. Pick one up. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's true. That's bonus. And then you win as well, so it's double. Yeah. Not that anyone's counting. No, we're counting. Okay, okay. Hey, I'm going to pray for you and and let you preach, and uh, thank you for being here. Got it. Father God, we thank you so much for Sean. We thank you for his willingness to bring the word to us this morning, God. We, we know that you've given him a message for us that uh, will help us be able to live life in the tension. God, we want to be people who fulfill our calling, but epitomize you and your son uh, full of grace and truth. So we pray now that you give Sean clarity and prepare our hearts to receive your word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. That may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Live your truth. You ever heard a phrase like that? Given how much confusion there is about truth today, I figured we'd start with a verse that you know to bring some clarity in John fourteen six, where Jesus says, I'm one of the ways, one of the truths, <laughs> and one possible life. Jesus didn't say that, did he? You know, there's at least a hundred verses in the New Testament alone that make the claim that Jesus is the only way to get to God. Jesus seemed to think that truth and what you and I believe about it is pretty important. So have you ever really stopped and just thought, why does truth even matter? Who cares? Why can't I have my truth and you just have your truth? Well, A number of years ago, I was speaking on a topic like this. And as soon as I was done, this high school student walked right down the aisle. He goes, Dr. McDowell, he goes, you just spent an hour talking about truth. Why is truth even important? I said, well, do you want the true answer or the false answer? (laughs) Now, if you ask why is truth important, even if you don't realize it, what are you already assuming is important? This is the participatory part of the program. The reality is because we live in God's world and we're made in God's image, we all know that truth matters deeply. We know it. The apostle Paul put it frank. He said, and with all the deception of wickedness, for those who perish 
because they do not receive the love of truth so as to be saved. Paul says, do you love truth? And it has eternal consequences. So let's break this down though specifically. Why is truth so important? Why does truth matter? Well, I'm actually all of you right where you're at. Go ahead and close your eyes. Seriously, close your eyes. With your eyes closed, point the direction you think is north. Keep your eyes closed. You got to choose. You got to pick. Keep your eyes closed. Now with your hands still pointed, open up and look around. I mean, let me tell you something. I have minimal sense of direction, but I can tell you north is not straight up. I'm not kidding. I think every time I've done this, there's at least one person who points north straight up, which is probably where I would point based on my instincts. Now, if you're trying to get to Washington or get to Canada and you're confused, you're going to end up in my great state of California, right? What might you have to help you know what direction north is? A compass, right? Or the app on your smartphone, Truth is, first off, truth has consequences. And when you don't know it, what happens? You go the wrong direction. You end up where you don't want to be. Truth has consequences for our lives and for our actions. My uncle is a pastor in the Northwest. And he was telling me a story. I'm sorry, in the Northeast. He was telling me a story about a cousin of mine who I never met who was deaf. Every morning he'd go walking out on the train tracks at the same time. He went out one morning and it never occurred to him they would change the time that the trains came. He couldn't hear the warning and the train couldn't stop in time. It actually struck and killed my cousin because he had false information. Friends, truth has consequences, doesn't it? Just think about how much your life is based on what you think is true. Okay, what day is it? What time does church start? How do I get to church? Like literally moment by moment, we're making choices based on what we think is true. And when we get it wrong, there's consequences. That's in part why Hosea, the minor prophet said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. So the first reality of truth is that it has consequences, negative. But second, like I mentioned before, truth is also a compass for life. When we know what is true, we can avoid consequences. And now we know what direction we should go. In other words, when we know what is true, we know how we should orient our lives and what choices we should make. My mom, a number of years ago, got a new email account. She's a boomer. And she's come a long ways on technology, but has struggled. We'll just put it that way. And uh, one of the first instructions on the computer screen said, Close all the windows. <laughs> she actually got up from her chair, walked around the house, and closed all the windows in the house. Now you're chuckling because either you get the joke or you've done the same thing. <laughs> now she came back, my sister was like, Mom, what are you doing? She told her, I think my sister fell on the floor and laughed and cried. <laughs> She couldn't believe that happened. Now, a computer's designed by somebody very smart, isn't it? To operate a certain way. And when, when you get the wrong message, what happens? It leads to confusion, embarrassment, 
frustration and anger, right? That's what happens. But you see, computer has been designed by somebody very smart to function a certain way. And it's only when we know its design and we know its purpose, we know the truth about it, then we can use it accordingly. You see, the first thing we learn about God in the Bible is not that God is holy, just, loving, merciful, righteous. But the Bible starts with, in the beginning, God created. The first thing we're told about God is that God is a creator. You see, if something is created, there's a purpose for it. So we're told God is a creator. There's a purpose for language. There's a purpose for work. There's a purpose for marriage. And it's when we know that truth and orient our lives to it that we're set free. I think one of the biggest lies all of us, in particular younger generations, are tempted to believe is about the nature of freedom. That freedom is doing whatever you feel, whatever you want, you do you. Look inside and if you feel it, live it. That's real freedom. Friends, that's not freedom, that's slavery. Freedom is when we know what is true and we orient our lives to what is true. That's why G.K. Chesterton a century plus ago said, look, you can free a camel from the zoo, but don't free it from its hump. Having a hump is in part what it means to be a camel. It's when we know what something was made for and the truth about it and orient our lives to that truth that we're set free. That's why Jesus is the truth and Satan is what? The father of lies. And Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Lies bring slavery, truth brings freedom. So truth matters because without truth, there's consequences, negative, but second, positive. It tells us how we should live our lives. It's like a compass. But third reason truth matters is because believing is not enough. You might be thinking, what do you mean believing is not enough? Friends, nothing is true because you believe it. Don't believe me? You know how many times I believed I was six foot 10 and in the NBA? <laughs> I'm only six, seven. <laughs> So laughs everybody who's not 6'7", except maybe for you. <laughs> Even on this stage, I might not be 6'7". It doesn't matter how much I believe it. Nothing's true because we believe it. Look, if I believe there's a million dollars in my wallet, it doesn't matter how much I believe that. First off, if there were, my great state of California would probably take half of it anyways. <laughs> that was a painful laugh because it's no different here, is it? I travel the Midwest, they're like, oh, you live in California, what a bummer. It's nice to travel here and feel like we both experience certain levels of pain. So <laughs> I'm feeling the love this morning with you folks. <laughs> Nothing is true because we believe it. See, here's the key. You can have your own beliefs, but you cannot have your own truth. You can have your own beliefs, but you cannot have your own truth. Now to fully understand why that's the case, let's take a moment and define what we mean by truth. So philosophers have a fancy definition, but I think you'll find it's common sense and helpful, what's called the correspondence theory of truth. And the idea is that you make a statement or you hold a belief 
And if it matches up or corresponds with reality, then your belief is what? It's true. If it doesn't, your belief is false or not true. So truth is telling it like it is. Truth is when you have a belief that actually describes the world as it is in reality. So truth is not reality. Truth is accurately representing reality. So if I said to you, I drove here from Southern California where I live, and it only took me about nine hours because I drove straight up the five on my new red Lamborghini. And you go walking outside and you see this, my statement just might be what? Just humor me. (laughs) Might be true. Now, if you walk outside and you see this, my statement would be what? False. False. Why? Because I said it's red. In reality, it's yellow. If you walk outside and you see the kind of car I used to drive, which is this. (laughs) Why are you laughing? (laughs) I gave this talk a while ago to junior hires and a kid goes, ah, ha, ha, you drive a Ford. I was like, what do you drive? (laughs) Oh, man. It'd be really false because that's not close to a Lamborghini. Now, I actually played this game with my kids. I tried to teach my kids basic truths. In our family, we love superheroes. And take the image, so to speak, the object and the word. So that is Wolverine. There's a correspondence. That is Batman. And that is Spider-Man. When a word matches up with the object, you have truth. Is that smoke? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Now, what'd you do when I said that? First off, your heart dropped. Second, you turned and looked. Since there's no smoke back there, my statement was what? It was false. If there actually were, my statement would have been what? True. (laughs) Now, I didn't hear that, but it sounds like there's some smart aleck in the audience. (laughs) There's always one in every group. Now, since you understand the concept, we make a statement, we hold a belief, and then we see if the world is the way we described it to be. Now, in some ways, you should be sitting here going, Sean, that's really common sense, and it is. You can't not use truth this way. Now, the Bible doesn't define truth this way. There's no verse that says truth is when a belief matches up with reality. But what's the ninth commandment? Thou shalt not what? Lie. What's a lie? Intentionally misrepresenting the truth. Now, everybody uses this understanding of truth in their daily lives. It's inescapable. But when the topic shifts to moral values or religion, many people will change what they mean by truth. So let's break this down. I'm curious. Just throw it out there. What is What do you think is the best flavor of ice cream? Mint chocolate chip? Cookie dough? What'd you say? Strawberry? Sherbet? Not an ice cream, sorry. All right, let me save you some time because I might have heard the correct answer once out there. The best flavor of ice cream is chocolate peanut butter. Now, by a show of hands, have you say that statement is true? Let me see your hands. Have you say that statement is false? 
okay, so how can that statement be true for me and a few of you and false for others? And the answer is because we're talking about something we call subjective. Subjective claims are personal and they're private and they depend upon the beliefs of the individual or the experience of the individual. In fact, the key word in subjective is what? Subject or person. Think of subjective claims as preferences that are internal to the one who holds them. Okay, so when you think of subjective claims, I want you to think of ice cream because ice cream flavor preference is subjective and depends upon the individual. And what if I said chocolate peanut butter ice cream controls diabetes? <laughs> that was a little bit of a nervous laughter, wasn't it? Usually I get an amen, but clearly there's no Baptist here. <laughs> Now, that's a different kind of claim, isn't it? Now, we're not talking about preferences. Now, we're talking about something within the real world that our beliefs about could have serious consequences. See, the claim that chocolate peanut butter ice cream can control diabetes is not a subjective claim. It's what we would call an objective claim. See, objective claims are about the external world, the way reality is in itself. So rather than being about the subject, it's about the object. So you might say it's about the mind independent world is what it's about. Okay. So maybe think about it this way. If I had a big scoop of ice cream right here and I said, this ice cream is delicious. Is that really about the ice cream or my experience of the ice cream? That's a subjective claim. If I said, this is 20 grams, what's that about? the object, the ice cream itself, okay? So when you think of objective claims, I want you think of insulin because insulin actually helps control diabetes. Now I'm gonna ask you to participate here with me in a moment and shout out one of two things. If I put a subjective claim on the screen, just shout out ice cream. If I put an objective claim on the screen, shout out insulin. Now, very important. I'm not asking if these claims are true or false. I'm simply asking what kind of claim are they? Subjective claim, ice cream, objective claim. All right, let's give it a shot. Ice cream or insulin, Coke tastes better than Pepsi. Okay, good. Even if you don't like Coke or Pepsi and you prefer coffee or tea, that's a subjective claim. Good. Diet Coke has fewer calories than regular Coke. Insulin, okay, now we're talking about the Coke or soda itself and some property it inherently has. Two plus two equals four. Okay, good. I think I've maybe had one person in all the time I've done this say ice cream. If there's anything that is objective, it's math, even though they're trying to change that today, aren't they? We know that mathematical claims are about a mind-independent reality. They're not preferences. Okay, ice cream or insulin? Hawaii is the most beautiful vacation spot on earth. Okay, good. We all know it's Southern California. <laughs> By the way, that drive from your airport here in Salem was beautiful. That is a stunning, stunning drive. Actually, by the way, side note, 
The claim a rose is beautiful. If you don't think a rose is beautiful, you are just as wrong as if you think two plus two equals five. I'm not kidding. I'm dead serious. And we could come back to that. <laughs> Ice cream or insulin. George Washington is the first president of the United States. Insulin. Okay, good. Now this deals with what realm? History. It's a fact. You can't see it like you could allegedly see smoke in the back. But it's a claim from the past of which there's a mind-independent reality about the way things were. Okay? Action movies are more enjoyable than romances. Okay, good. Now, I know there's some guys who are like, man. (laughs) Fellas, I've been married 23 years. That is not a hill worth dying on. (laughs) Ice cream or insulin? Sean McDowell can bench press 300 pounds. (laughs) I am not feeling the love. Who says ice cream? Show hands. Who says insulin? Okay, hands down. Listen very carefully. I'm not asking if this is true or false. I'm asking, is this a preference claim or is this a claim about the mind-independent objective world? Now, do you know the answer to that? No. You might think you do, but you don't know the answer to that question. But here's what matters. To know whether it's ice cream or insulin, do you have to know if it's true or false? No. There is a fact about that claim, isn't it? And your beliefs don't change it. Your preferences don't change it. Now we could test it, cut off some sleeves, throw on some 45, see if I can bench press it or not. But the answer is yes or no. That is an objective claim about the world. So if I said there's 50 quadrillion, zillion, 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 zillion atoms in the universe, we will never be able to test that. But that is about the universe and that claim is true or false independent of what you think about it. You're like, but yeah, can you bench press 300 pounds? Here's the deal. I cared before I turned 40. Now I just want to stay alive. (laughs) So don't confuse knowing if something is true or false with there being a truth or false reality about that thing. Okay, all right, let's try another one. Earth is the center of the solar system. Insulin, Insulin. okay, but it's also what? No, it's not also ice cream. This is not a preference claim. This is a false insulin claim, isn't it? Now it deals with science, it's a scientific claim. But if I said two plus two equals five, that's an objective claim that's false. If I said George Washington was the second president of the United States, that's an objective claim that is false. So you can have false insulin claims. I want everyone to vote on this one. Ice cream or insulin, abortion is wrong. Well, that got really quiet. Who says ice cream? Show hands. Who says insulin? This is after the 2020 elections. I will never vote again. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) It's tempting, isn't it? Now, this is not a scientific claim. It's not a mathematical or historical claim. That is a moral claim. 
Are moral claims all matters of preference, like ice cream flavor choice, or do they deal with a mind-independent, objective world? Now, years ago, I was having a conversation with a fellow about this. He goes, if you don't like abortion, don't have one. I said, I'm really sorry to point out the obvious, but I can't. I actually think sarcasm is a spiritual gift. It's the sixth love language. Notice what he said to me. If you don't like abortion, don't have one. If you don't like chicken, get the fish. If you don't like coffee, get tea. He shifted the question of abortion to the question of preference. So I asked him a question prompted by a mentor of mine. I said, hey, are you getting slavery? He goes, yes. I said, then if you don't like slavery, don't own a slave. Then are we against slavery because we don't like it? No, we're against slavery because it's wrong to own and mistreat another human being based on something secondary like skin color. If you think morality is like ice cream, then you cannot condemn anything as being morally wrong. You can't condemn any actions between Russia and Ukraine, whoever's at fault, bombing hospitals and killing kids. You have no right to judge. You can't judge racism as being wrong, sexism as being wrong, genocide as being wrong, if morality is like ice cream. But we all know that it's not, don't we? Whenever somebody tells me they're a relativist, I never believe them. They might think they are. They might say that they are. But deep down inside, they live in God's world and made in God's image and know there's right and know there's wrong. How do I know this? First off, Romans chapter two. says, even people without the law know the law because it's written where? On the heart, on the conscience. I tell my students, so I teach at Biola University full-time and I still do one high school class, part-time a Bible class. And I'll tell my students, I'll say, look, if someone tells you there's no such thing as right and wrong, cut in front of them in line. (laughs) They're gonna very quickly let you know that you did something unjust and unfair and there's a moral code that we're both bound to. So you know someone views about morality not by their actions, but by their reactions. We know there's right and we know there's wrong. So a number number of years ago, my students came into me when I was teaching high school full time and they said, hey, Dr. McDowell, there's this, in the public school across town, they had this free thinking event and a hundred students showed up to hear about like atheism and agnosticism. And they were telling me about this. I said, what do you guys want to do? We got the idea that we would challenge three students from this free thinking club to a public debate with three of my Christian students on the historical Jesus, intelligent design versus evolution and morality. And they accepted. And our church was roughly this size. It was packed, people along the walls. I'm sure we were breaking every fire code. And uh, I'll never forget, because one of my students got up there, I'd, I'd taught her and she said, we all know there's right and wrong. We expect people to follow it and live it. That's because there's a moral law. The best explanation for a moral law is there's a moral law giver. She sits down. One of their students said, there is no objective moral law. It's all preference. Hence, there's no need for a moral law giver. 
You have your code live accordingly, I have my code live accordingly. It's all preference. Sits down. But then it was time for the closing speech. And keep in mind, you have like three minutes to conclude in this format. And what you're supposed to do is sum up why you win the debate, the points you made, and why the other side lost. Well, instead, he gets up there, looks out, stands behind the podium, and realizes it's probably a majority Christian audience. And this student who moments ago said, there's no objective moral law, there's no right and wrong, it's all preference, looks out and says, you know what, you Christians are a bunch of bigots. You're hateful, you're homophobic, you're intolerant, shame on you, repeats himself and sits down. Do you notice the irony? He literally handed the debate away if the students had picked up on it. I don't know how you say there's no objective right and wrong, but you hateful, bigoted Christians have violated every objective moral code. I don't know how you hold those two ideas together in your head without your head exploding. But the reality is, He's made in the image of God and he lives in God's world and knows there's right and wrong. Like a beach ball that you push underwater, at some point the truth is going to pop up. It's gonna pop up. So what is the question of abortion, by the way? Imagine that some of you go home after church and you decide to do the dishes. Now, for some of you, this is gonna take a lot of imagination. Your back is turned and you're doing the dishes. Younger brother, sister, grandkid says, hey, mom, mommy, hey, papa, can I kill this? Before you say yes or no, what question would you ask? What is it? If it's a roach, you'd be like, hurry up. If it's a kitten or a puppy, you'd be like, whoa, stop, that's cute. Why do you want to harm this? If, if the kid is like, hey, I pulled this infant out of a carriage down the street. Can I kill this? You'd be like, whoa, no. And even though you're five, you need serious counseling. Why should we treat a human differently than we treat a roach? And the answer is what it is. What is the unborn? If it is not a human being, then no justification is necessary. If it is a human being, then what justification is adequate to take the life of a valuable, vulnerable human person? If the unborn's not human, don't waste your time putting money in those bottles. If it is human, it's worth saving and protecting human life. Friends, either the unborn is human or it's not. And either we protect human life or we don't. We might have differences about the morality of abortion, but that doesn't mean there's no truth about it. People differ over historical facts. Nothing falls from disagreement. Moral questions are not like ice cream. They're like insulin. In fact, if all morality was relative, then why exactly would Jesus have to die? Let's keep going. Ice cream or insulin? Jesus was a carpenter. Insulin. It's not a trick. You feel like I'm setting you up, don't you? <laughs> Jesus died on the cross in eighty thirty. Insulin. Could be 29. Some argue 33, but it's still an insulin claim. Jesus resurrected as proof he is divine. Insulin. Okay, good. Now that's a historical claim with theological implications, isn't it? Let me make something super clear to make sure we're on the same page. Nobody dies and goes to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. 
You realize that, right? Nobody dies and goes to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus. People die and go to the awful place the Bible describes as hell because of a rebellion against their creator, because of a moral virus the Bible calls sin. And to say that Buddha or Krishna or Muhammad or any other religious figure can forgive my sins is like saying chocolate peanut butter ice cream controls diabetes. It doesn't work in the objective real world. Have you ever really thought, why is Jesus the only way? Why is he the only way? Jesus is the only way because he's the only one who fixed the problem that separates us from God. Friends, if your car runs out of gas, it doesn't do any good to rotate the tires, get new spark plugs and drop five grand on a new transmission. (laughs) Identify the problem and fix it. The ultimate problem in the world is not economic. It's not political. The heart of the problem in the world is moral. There's an objective moral law rooted in God's character, friends. And when we sin, we are separated from God. And Jesus, the God-man who lived a sinless life, is the only one who paid our debt and offers us salvation for free if we're humble enough to accept it. Jesus is the only way because he's the only one who fixed the problem. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Christianity is rooted in a single testable historical event, the resurrection. Either it happened or it didn't happen. Either Jesus died by crucifixion or he didn't. He was buried or he wasn't. Tomb was empty or it wasn't. He appeared to people or he didn't. Those are either true or false. Now, what's amazing about this is think about it. If you were there with Thomas in John 20, it describes this as, I will not believe unless I can see and touch. You could have reached out and touched the spear wounds inside of Jesus. If you're there with the women at the empty tomb, you could have seen a stone rolled away, ducked, leaned inside, smelled the scent of an empty tomb and seen the linen cloth of Jesus laying there. If you're there at the cross, you could have reached out and touched the cross and maybe got a splinter on your hand and felt the trickle of warm blood coming down the cross. The claims of Christianity are true or they're false. We believe them or we don't. And what's unique about Christianity is it invites investigation, doesn't it? Love God with your mind. Come let us reason together. Now we're stepping into a whole separate talk we won't do, but the follow-up question is how do we know that Christianity is true? I think we can know it when the Holy Spirit speaks directly to our hearts and changes us from within, but we can also know it, like the scriptures say, by looking at the miracles and the evidence that God has laid out in creation and in history. Friends, Jesus is not a way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? Let's take some questions. We got about 17 minutes or so. Can we thank John for his message this morning? We have a a way for you to submit some questions. We've already had some in. If we have time, we'll get through as many as we can this morning. Sean has graciously 
uh, offered to take some of these questions on the spot, off the cuff. I think the first one that's in the room. Do it. We throw me that water. Is, you can toss it. I got hands, man. Come on. Why is a rose objectively beautiful? Okay, this is such a big question. Let me just, as quickly as I can, I want you to think about the way you talk about and experience beauty. Do you walk by a sunset and say, that is beautiful? Do you look at the mountains that I was driving on to get here, looking out saying, that is beautiful? Do you look at a waterfall or a diamond or a rose and at least speak about it as if the rose is red and has a certain weight and inherently has the property of beauty? I walked in here, I thought, wow, what a beautiful backdrop. This is one of the most beautiful backdrops I've seen in a church. Now, if they had a whole bunch of trash out here, would it literally be like, hey, Sean, that's beautiful to me? Or would it be like, you know what? If you think trash is beautiful, there's something wrong with you. (laughs) Friends, I'm dead serious. If you listen to Bach and are like, yeah, I just don't find it beautiful. The problem is not with Bach. The problem is you have not cultivated the ability to recognize the beauty found within that music itself. You know, one reason we have a hard time believing beauty is objective is we are so corrupted by ugliness in our world. Sex is beautiful. Pornography twists and corrupts it. Why is it that we find beauty in the depths of the ocean and the depths of the galaxy? Evolution can't explain that. It's not necessary. We discover beauty. And we sure talk about things. Look, maybe I'm stepping on it, but if you think a Thomas Kincaid painting is as beautiful as a Rembrandt, and I like Kincaid, but they don't compare in terms of the beauty of the art itself. All I want you to do is reflect upon this. By the way, God is morally good, isn't he? God is also beautiful. Why did he put man in a garden? Why? There's something beautiful about a garden. Why was the temple so beautiful? The end, right? When Jesus comes back, the city is full of diamonds and jasper and gold because there's something inherently beauty in that. So God has put beauty in our world to draw us out of ourselves to something transcendent as a signal to there being a divine artist in the universe itself. That's the quickest I can answer that question. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, One of the questions here that I think would be really helpful because we get this a lot as pastors is just what is your uh, kind of counsel, advice, wisdom for us as a church to be equipped to enter into conversations about sexuality and transgender? What would be your charge to us? First thing you have to do is know what you believe and why you believe it. Have you thought through biblically what the Bible teaches about sex and gender? There's a certain level of confidence that comes when we not only know what scripture teaches, but that what scripture teaches about gender and about marriage is good and true and beautiful. So you've got to start there. I didn't bring it. I apologize. I wrote a book called Chasing Love for Students. It's all about myths in our culture about sex, love, and identity, God's design for sex, marriage, and singleness. Then I respond to transgender, pornography, living together, all those kinds of challenges. 
First thing you have to do is learn a little bit of what you believe and why you believe it. I've got a bunch of free videos on YouTube if you plug in transgender and my name, I guess, is the best way to search it. It would pop up. Those are free. You can just watch those. And there's other great resources out there too to find. That's step number one. Step number two, listen more than you speak. Listen more than you speak. And this is hard for me to do. I'm a professor. My daughter gave me a mug and I choose to take it as a compliment. It said, I don't need Google. My dad knows everything. <laughs> I, that was a compliment. That's, she smiled when she gave it to me. But I'm telling you, I ask a lot more questions than I listen because beneath so much of these kinds of issues are questions, do I belong? Do you see me? Will you love me? And will you stand by me? Bottom line is we have to live in the tension and I don't have simple answers for this. It raises a million questions, pronouns and all this kind of stuff. But bottom line, we cannot compromise what is true because truth is what brings real freedom. Must have a posture of kindness and graciousness towards others. So my aim, I don't always do it, is to be as gracious as I can be towards others without compromising truth. Thank you for that. The next question, you kind of mentioned this in your talk this morning, but what is the single most compelling argument for the historicity of the resurrection? You said this is pretty vital. What would you offer? Okay, so I teach a full semester course on the resurrection. And there's not just one fact, but well, bottom line is when we look historically at this, the way we look at any other historical event, we know Jesus died by crucifixion. We know who's buried in Joseph's tomb. Why would they make a hero out of the very person from the Sanhedrin that condemned him to death? Why would they make a hero, all four gospels, out of Joseph to give an honorable burial to him? That's like the Jews unnecessarily making a hero out of the Nazis. <laughs> we know Jesus died by crucifixion. We know who's buried. We actually have at least 21 arguments that the tomb was empty, one being that it was discovered by women. A woman's voice was not considered as significant as a man's in that culture. So if they're making it up, why would all four gospels invent discovered by women? It would be contrary. That's one argument. We know Jesus died by crucifixion, was buried, tomb is empty. And then you have all these people claiming that they saw Jesus. You have the apostles, you have uh, the disciples, you have larger group of apostles, you have James, you have the 500, you have Paul, by the way, not one of the 12. And what's amazing is the vast majority of scholars will agree, I'm wording this very carefully, that the apostles had experiences that they believed were of the risen Jesus and it transformed their lives. <laughs> so it's not just one fact, it's, a, it's kind of a cumulative case when we look at it Every other supposed explanation can account for some of the facts, but not all of them. So some will say maybe the apostles hallucinated. Well, one problem is hallucinations don't occur to groups. They're individual experiences, except with rare exception. Second, if they hallucinated, the body would still be in the tomb, but we know the tomb is empty. So the evidence points towards Jesus raising. There's no explanation that can account for all the facts. So... Me, I did my whole dissertation on the apostles' willingness to suffer and die for their belief that they saw Jesus. I, I spent three years and I wrote a 300-page academic book studying the traditions of Bartholomew and Thomas and Peter. How did they die? 
Bottom line is the apostles thought they saw the risen Jesus and they're willing to suffer and die for that conviction. Doesn't sound like a group of liars to me. Thank you for that answer. Uh, this is another question I think uh, I've heard uh, on a couple of interviews you've done lately, you kind of speak to this, but uh, considering that we live in a post-Christian culture and there's so many things that are impacting not only, it's impacting every generation. What have you learned as far as, this, what are the major changes in apologetic approaches? Has there been a big change or a big question oh. that didn't used to be something we had to address, but now we have to if we're going to have the conversation? That's interesting. So let me quibble with the language. When we say post-Christian culture, it implies there's such a thing as a Christian culture or Christian state, which is somewhat of an oxymoron. And we go back, even in our country, there were a lot of ways where the church was on the wrong side of moral issues at times, wasn't it? So I'm always careful when I say, oh, we had this great Christian state in the past. I'm like, well, I'm not sure I want to frame it that way. I'd actually say today we almost are in an anti-Christian culture, though. If you really believe what the Bible says, in particular, Jesus being the only way, and a biblical view of identity and marriage and sex, that in itself is considered harmful by a very powerful narrative. So the best way I could describe this shift is a few of you beforehand know my father, Josh McDowell. He's written 100 and some books, spoken in 1,200 universities, 83 this summer. And my, my dad started speaking on college campuses, I think like late 60s through like early 90s. And a lot of times when he would speak on the resurrection of biblical sexuality, the challenges would be, that's not true. Give me evidence. Show me the facts. And then around the 90s to early 2000s, he noticed a shift where people wouldn't just say that's not true. They'd say that's bigoted. That's intolerant. And now more recently, it's not only that that, they don't say that's false. They don't say that's bigoted. They say that message is harmful. (laughs) So there's been a shift, you might say, in how people approach claims of truth. I think another big shift is if you go back a few generations, there was an understanding that the problem in the world is out there. We protest something objective in the world. Think about Vietnam protests. It's the war. There's something external to us. It's shifted internally. We've almost had a culture shift from objective to subjective. So when my father first wrote his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, there was no chapter on truth. You didn't need to defend that there's such thing as truth. Truth is good and truth brings freedom. In 2017, we updated his classic book, and in the back of it, we have three chapters on postmodernism and on truth and on history just being knowable in a way we didn't have to decades ago. So you have to give an apologetic for, I guess in one way you could say, questions have kind of shifted from not only is Christianity true, but is Christianity good? That's a broad way that this has shifted. I love that answer. And as you get to work with a lot of uh, college students and young adults, the, the questions of those gray areas, you know, the ones that the Bible doesn't specifically speak to, what, what answers or what approach do you recommend to all believers on these topics in culture that are highly debated, but yet there's not a chapter and verse where we might say this clearly says God's point of view on that? Okay, so one of the things I try to do is I try to distinguish what's an essential issue from what's a secondary issue. So I wanna make sure I die on the right hills. 
Now, have I always done that? No, I'm not gonna pretend I have this perfectly dialed in, but these are the principles that I try to live by. Is this a hill worth dying on? Pro-life, that's a hill literally worth dying on. The nature of marriage, that is a hill worth dying on. Biblical justice, and I didn't say social justice, I said biblical justice, a hill worth dying on. So the first thing I ask, is it essential or is it secondary? If the Bible doesn't directly speak to an issue, doesn't mean we can't gather some principles about how it would apply. So you asked earlier about the question of transgender. The Bible doesn't address transgender directly because it is more of a recent phenomena that your identity is rooted in your feelings. This is more of a recent phenomena. But the Bible talks about what it means to be human, doesn't it? That we are body and we are soul. Somebody who's transgender is effectively saying, I am a man trapped in a woman's body or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. My soul doesn't match up with my body. Now I have massive compassion for somebody who feels that way. That must be the first Christian response is to show compassion, not lead with judgment. But even built within transgender is this idea that there's kind of body and there's soul. Well, the Bible says we are body and soul and consistently teaches that our gender expression is to match up with our biological sex. Our biological sex is a part of who God has made us to be. So that issue is not explicitly taught, but when we lay out the principles in scripture, I think it's very clear. Now you get to issues, we're just talking about all the controversial ones this morning, get to issues like say gun control, okay? Obviously the Bible doesn't talk about gun control because there weren't guns. So how do we take the principles of scripture and apply it to the protection of human life? Where this gets sticky is for the most part, people on both sides of the debate want to minimize school shootings and violence, don't they? They just differ over the best means to get there. A more trained, armed populace or get rid of guns. My point is not to take a side on this. And some of you are mad at me that I'm not taking a side on this. My point is that's more of an issue where the Bible doesn't explicitly talk about it. We go to principles of human life, principles making sure things like guns don't become idols to us, principle of protection. And then we just have to look at the facts and do our best to vote and act accordingly and show charity maybe to Christians who view it differently. That's the way I try to look at issues like this. Some are more black than white, but don't start with the gray issues. Let's start with the more clear issues and work from there. Man, thank you for that. I, I just think one of the things I've taken away from you this morning and just in watching you and listening to you is just that a lot of these difficult questions can't be rushed through. They take time mm. and making space just to have the conversation is not a compromise of truth. Uh, that truth is going to be discovered as we continue to reason together and look at God's word for those answers. Uh, you brought a book with you this morning that you're going to be, I did. Uh, we have a few copies available out there and um, just tell us a little bit about the book and then we'll. Uh, I write. will. Let me say really fast. That is such a good point. And it's hard to be patient because everybody wants you to tweet your thoughts right away, answer quickly, and then we can move on to the next issue that we're all mad about and provoked about, right? Isn't that how our culture works? I think sometimes as Christians, let's take a deep breath. Let's step back and ask ourselves, how do, rather than throwing gasoline on this, 
how do I throw a little water on this, find common ground, and move through wisely? Now, there is a time to speak prophetically and speak truth. I'm not saying we don't. But a lot more times, I'm doing exactly what you say. Okay, let's spend time listening. Let's talk with this person, right? I want to hear your story and find common ground. We just don't often proceed that way. So I love you said that. So this is actually the first event, I think, that I've held this book at. My dad set out years ago in the 50s to disprove Christianity. He had a painful background of abuse and just really painful. And uh, some Christians challenged him to consider Christianity. He thought it was a joke. So he set out to disprove it before there was any like modern apologetics books. And ended up, the evidence got his attention, but the love of God drew him. And he wrote a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Now that book is, I think, 700 pages. It's huge. So recently the publisher was like, could we make a quick handy guide that takes, (laughs) I'm glad you're laughing. You see the value in this, is taking, like you asked, evidence for the resurrection, that Jesus is God. What about contradictions in the Bible? And just three, four, five page concise answers that frankly, when you talk about your faith, if you're just ready with a thoughtful answer for most people, that's enough. So it's a newest book wrote with my father, which is pretty special called Evidence for Jesus. Thank you so much, Sean. Can we give Sean a hand for being here this morning? Sean is going to be out in the back. If you'd like to say hi to him on your way out this morning, you're welcome to do that. But we're so thankful for the time. Thank you for submitting questions. I was getting them rapidly as we uh, were standing up here. Sorry that we weren't able to answer all those. But um, be sure to uh, continue to think about the things that we're saying, the importance of truth, and the fact that we can build our lives on the trustworthy truth of God's word and have answers to those who are hurting in our world today. Let me pray for us, and then we will dismiss you this morning. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be reminded of the importance of truth, its value. God, we pray that you'd help us with discernment, that we would see the difference between subjective truth and objective truth, that we would know how to apply your, your word, not just to claims, God, but to these moral dilemmas that we, we find ourselves wrestling with. God, let us settle under your love and your truth, and let us be a gentle and clear voice to a world that is angry, hurting, and looking for answers. God, thank you for being a God who loves us and who came to reveal truth so that we could believe and find freedom in you. God, we we thank you for this morning and pray now that you would help this, this thought and these words from your word help us in our thinking this week. We pray this in your son's beautiful name. Amen. We love you guys. Have a great week.